Welcome to the Emerge Leadership Connection, the podcast that gives you the keys to unlock your heroic potential, develop into a legendary leader, and emerge into who you are meant to be. On today's episode, we have a conversation with Jesse Harless and discuss the first addiction we all face, where the opioid crisis began and some of its effects. What goes through the mind when you're facing federal felonies? warning signs of addictive personalities, and tools to overcome addictions, both for yourself and those you lead. I'm your host, Cody Dakota, founder of the Leadership Guide and finalist for the Extraordinarian Award for coaches with ideas that can change people, businesses, and the world for the better for my ideas on leadership. Stay tuned to the end of the episode to discover how to join the League of Legendary Leaders, an association of leaders with the goal to raise $100,000 monthly to support nonprofit causes which are currently looking to impact the world and make it better for future generations. Now, on to the show. Hey, Jesse, how are you doing today? Good, how are you, Cody? You know, I am living life and I am loving life. Things are good, my man. Great to hear. Thanks for having me on. Definitely. I'm, I'm excited for our conversation today because you, you've, one, have written a book with a very interesting title, which, um, as you've told me, is a little off-putting to some people, but sometimes off-putting is a great thing. And then the other thing is you have a pretty interesting background that kind of led into this book being written, which, um, which I think can be extremely impactful for people to hear. So, I mean, where do you like to get started? Where do you want to get started? Wherever you want, wherever you want, my friend. I mean, we can go anywhere Where do you want to get started? Where would you like to start? Well, (laughs) I mean, I can, I mean, if you want me to give you the back history a little bit, that might be helpful to, to some listeners who, maybe um, have had someone they know who has struggled with addiction or maybe themselves have struggled with addiction. So I can kind of start there if you'd like. Sure. Let's do that. Yeah. So essentially just to give you the background, um, you know, I won't go too deep, but I'll just tell you that. the let's go deep. Okay. Let's go deep. deep. All right. Well, in in that case, so you know, the, the reality is, is like I came out of the womb and I was already addicted to sucking my thumb. And a lot of people will say, wow, well, I was too. So that's, <laughs> I relate there. And, you know, I was sucking my thumb every day and I did that. The problem was, is I did that, you know, so I came out of the womb sucking my thumb and I was sucking my thumb all the time. And, and at five, at five years old, there's an event that did happen that was a real significant moment in my life. My father actually, he fought in Vietnam and he got addicted to heroin. So it was about 20% of soldiers that get addicted to heroin. He was one of them. Wow. So that happened while he was in Vietnam. Mm -hmm. So was it, and and just because I'm curious about this, is it because there's an, there was an easier access over there as opposed Mm -hmm. to anywhere else? So it just, because the, the supply is easier to obtain there, the, the chances of succumbing to the addiction is a lot easier there. 
Yeah, that's what people were doing. It was it was it was it was not uncommon. So it was like the group, like if, if a group was, you know, here smoking cigarettes and there was twenty people all smoking cigarettes, you'd probably have twenty people smoking, you know, cigarettes. Yeah. And that's they just happened to be doing heroin. And so, you know, that was not un- abnormal. And so he was part of the twenty. But the key is when he left, um, only five percent stayed addicted when they came back home, which is a really fascinating study. Really? That, only 5% that seems stayed. exceptionally low to me. Yeah, so that's why environment plays a big role in addiction. And that was the study that was shown that environment plays a big role in addiction. But that's kind of a different conversation for a different day. But I can tell you that he he came back and he did get sober. And then what happened was in time, you know, he was he was drinking and then eventually he picked up cocaine and then eventually, you know, he he went down a bad path. And at five years old, when I was five years old, he left and never came back. So that was kind of like, you know, when you were that young, you have a very, you have a high sensitivity to abandonment. You are very yeah. sensitive to abandonment. And that's just when you're, when your mom goes to the store, never mind like when, or your dad leaves the house, never when your dad leaves yeah. it never comes back. So it can cause trauma. So that basically he left, didn't come back. And I, and I felt at some level that I wasn't aware of some type of like, I was unlovable. Like I wasn't worthy of something. Like I had a, a part in that even though I didn't, um, at some level I felt that. So, you know, so this, to go back to second, the thumb, you know, at, at nine years old, I was playing pop Warner football, you know, tackle football, like real football. And I was sucking my thumb still. <clears throat> and just to put it into perspective, I mean, that's not an acceptable behavior when you're playing football and all that stuff, but I would hide it. So, you know, like I just found ways to cope really young with my emotional pain, with the way I was feeling. If I felt the feeling, I would numb it out in a certain way. <clears throat> and one way was sucking the thumb. So that's kind of the back, the backdrop. And then eventually at 11 years old, I discovered internet pornography. And so that's not a good time. And now I know kids are starting to find it at seven and eight. But yeah. I'm telling you, at, at, at 11, that's when I found it. And I can tell you that between online gaming, so I started to isolate more. I started to play online games a lot on the computer, but I started, I started engaging in the internet pornography. Watch it. That actually changes the brain maps in your, in your brain. It actually, it actually causes your, you know, these, these things that fire the neurons to, to rewire in a certain way. We know that now in the research, you know, all these, all these years later, we, 20 years later, we know the research. And so- yeah. That was kind of the playground that I was messing with, with my brain, with my life. And so that made it very difficult for me to move on to build new relationships with men or women going into high school, like it affected both. And, and so just to skip through high school, because high school was just a really difficult time of like tremendous social anxiety. You know, I didn't eat in the cafeteria the last two years of my high school. You know, I, I was totally filled with fear, anxiety. So I didn't do that. So when I, when it was time to go to college, I, I didn't want to go to college. I, I wasn't even supposed to graduate senior year. I was late so many times. The headmaster had an intervention with my mom, a teacher and herself. And they were saying, we're, we're going to keep you back because you've been late like 60 times or something. And, and so um, you know, my mother though was a single mom. She wanted me to go to college. No one in our family went to college. So she's like, you're the one that's going to go to college. So I applied to a few schools, three of them. I got, I got accepted. I went to this small school and you know, at 18, I'm at a school, I'm in this unknown environment. What do I do? I find ways to escape. 
I find alcohol, I find marijuana, and that's what I start to do. And, you know, so that's where, that's where the drugs and alcohol started to come into play. Like I sampled that in high school, but it wasn't really a big deal. It's when I got to college where it was like, okay, this is easily accessible. It's, I can do it all the time. And so I started hitting the jackpots. If you're someone in addiction or <laughs> you start to hit jackpots, what that, what that means is I get arrested by a state trooper. You know, I got, um, you know, I got caught for plagiarism. I got in trouble in a dorm. I failed all my classes. I mean, I just really bombed that first semester and they let me back a second semester, which is so interesting. They let me back even though all that happened. And when I came back a second semester, I didn't, you know, I, I tried to change, but I didn't, I couldn't change like, cause I didn't know how to cope still. I was still drinking. And, and so I failed out of school. I come back home to live with my mom. And about a year later, I'll spare you a lot of details. I've already been telling too many details, but I, about no a year later, <laughs> I, so a year later, my father passes away. So now to put it into practice, my father, we didn't have a relationship. We like, we not, he, he, and from five to 20, we didn't have a relationship. But when he, when he passed, it was like, it was like I got burnt. It was like I got cheated out of something. And I, I can't, so it was like, it was at a deep level. I, I was hurt. And I, again, I wasn't aware of this. I just felt this deep pain that I, you know, I, and what I did as a response was I turned to hard drugs. I turned to cocaine. His drug of choice became my drug of choice. I turned to cocaine and then eventually I turned to heroin. Eventually I turned to Oxycontin. Eventually I turned to the, you know, the painkillers. And, and I can tell you, it didn't take long before my life became extremely unmanageable. And, um, and so what happened was like, I hit, I hit like a hard bottom and someone got in trouble and I kind of like escaped out of that dark life of cocaine and heroin. What I did is I just managed without telling anyone of my problem I, I got a job and I somehow just coped. And there's a lot of people who might be listening or there's a lot of people who are not listening that maybe should that are just maintaining. Like they're just getting by. Like they're doing drugs. Maybe they're in college and doing cocaine on the college campus. They're not thinking anything of it because 20 of their friends are doing it maybe every other week. But the bottom line is that's affecting your life. And so, and, and a lot of people think, oh, I won't get addicted, right? It's, it's not me. It's not me. I'm an exception. I won't get addicted. And so, you know, I was prone to addiction, you could say in some ways, you know, my father was addiction, but even if you're not, there's, you're, you're playing with fire. And so I ended up, um, you know, getting a job, you know, not telling anyone of my problem. And eventually I got arrested. And when I got arrested, um, <laughs> uh, I didn't tell anyone. I managed not to tell anyone. And this was a big arrest. This wasn't a small arrest. This was a serious arrest. I, you know, I found a way to order prescription. So I was addicted to pain pills. And this is in 2004, okay? So I was addicted to, to Oxycontin, Hydrocode, and all these things, which today are killing tons of people. Tons of people. Tons of people in this opioid crisis, which started during these times. 2001, 2002, the, the times that I was addicted is where this mess started, where these big pharmaceutical companies were pushing this, pushing this, sell it, sell it, sell it. And so I, and I'm not saying I was a part of that, but I was almost indirectly. And so I found a way to order pills. It got me in a lot of trouble. I got arrested. And what happened is they let me go. <laughs> and so I didn't tell anyone. And, I, and, and my friend at the time who I was working with, he said, let's go to Florida. So I'm like, yeah. So I was living in New Hampshire. I said, let's go to Florida. Florida is like the 
at that time was the pill capital. That was like where you get the pills. Well, and, and so, Florida's always been a party state. Yeah, Florida, it's just not a great place if you're trying to get sober. So no. I, well, I mean, they do have recovery, but I'm saying at the time and my motives was not to get sober. So I escaped to Florida and for 10 months, I try to manage my addiction. And I can tell you, I didn't do a great job. And it, it was only a matter of time before I picked up cocaine again. And I was doing, you know, synthetic opioids daily and drinking. And I hit a hard bottom, a near-to-death experience. I, I literally came as close as I've ever come to dying. I didn't die. And I came back to New Hampshire because, I, I mean, I was holding two jobs, by the way. I was holding two jobs while I had these addictions. And so I came back to New Hampshire within two weeks. I got a call from some agents and uh, these weren't state farm agents, <laughs> uh, federal agents. And, um, the, and they told me, hey, we have a federal warrant for your arrest. Don't go anywhere. And so on December 22nd, 2005, I was arrested with federal felonies and life got real, really fast. And so um, at that point, and I'll kind of like, I'll kind of stop here and, and, and see where you want to take this. But from that point, when I get arrested, that's when, that's when like I woke up like, whoa, what just happened the last four years of my life? And that's when the turnaround started to happen. You know, um, you know, that's when the turnaround for me started to happen where I had to literally change everything but my name. Like I had to change it all. And, and it, it started at 22 years old. Which is, which is significantly younger than most people have to when they, when they come up to any sort of major changes that happen in their life. Very rarely does someone have to make that kind of change at that age. Yeah, I mean, you know, nowadays, you know, with the way things are with, you know, fennel being cut and cocaine and heroin, just the way things are happening, it's like people are just getting smoked out there. You know, it's, it's, it's not like they can last four years anymore. You know, you're out there six months and it's a war zone because of how deadly these, these drugs are now. So it's, it's crazy. And, you know, at 22, when that happened, I can just tell you that, you know, when you're facing seven years in federal prison and that's what I was facing, I was like, you know, what, what do you do? Right. What do you do? Do you run and use and do your time or die? You know, whatever that means, what, what are the options here? Or, do you change everything, do something you've never done before and see what, what will happen if you go that direction. And so I chose to go the direction of let me, let me just go all in, whatever that means. And, and what happened was the court did not tell me to go to rehab. They didn't pay for rehab and tell me to go to rehab. They didn't send me to a drug court because it was no drug court at the time. They said, you're going to work full time because I had just got my full time job back right before I got arrested, which is insane. And so they say, you're going to work full time. You're going to go to these 12 step groups. You're going to see this drug and alcohol counselor. That's what you're going to do. And I was like, and you're not going to drink or drug or you'll be in, going to jail. Cause so they were putting me on a pre-trial. So that it's called pre-trial probation before the actual big date of the trial. So I, what did I do? I just ended up, I found a mentor. I started seeing this therapist. I started working full time. And I just went all in. I started journaling every day. I've been journaling for 13 years every single day. I have 13 years of journals from 22 to today. I still journal every day. So it's a huge recommendation I give to any of your listeners. Start journaling your journey. And I, journal, I started journaling. I started to read books. 
And these books would build me up. And I started to do, I started to say affirmations. And the reason why I started to say affirmations is because I had such bad panic attacks. I, I, I was working in sales. And so a customer would come in and I would literally blank out because I'd have a panic attack. And I'd have to like go to the bathroom, come back, and they didn't know what the hell's going on, but I'm having a panic attack. And so like I started to like say affirmations out loud because I thought that would help my panic attacks. I wasn't sure what to do. But I started to do all these new habits. And so, you know, I started to focus on my recovery every day. You know, I'm like, I don't, you know, like, what is recovery? Like, I just knew that I couldn't do drugs and alcohol. So I'm like, you know, so I had to figure this thing out. I started focusing on my recovery day. And I started doing this every day. What happened was doing this every day, eventually I had to go to 12 step groups. And so by combining all these things together, I, I had this like way of, of, of just getting by, but like feeling like I'm doing okay. Like I, I'm getting by and like what was hanging over my head was all this prison time. So, you know, I would meet with my pre-child, I would meet with my court appointed lawyer. I couldn't even afford a lawyer. So I had a court appointed lawyer and basically he would say like, this is how much time you, they want you to do. And I'm like, I'm not going to do that. Like, how can I go to federal prison for that long? Like, I, I can't do that. And eventually, what would happen, I would I keep going back and he would tell me this is so much time they want to do it. Eventually, I said, let me meet the prosecutor. <laughs> and that's what happened. And he was like, no, you're not going to meet the prosecutor. I said, yes, I want to talk to him in person because I want him to know that I was addicted and I'm, an, and I'm a, someone who struggles with addiction. It has nothing to do with dealing or ill motives. This is addiction. And so I met the guy and it was horrible and it was like the worst thing. And I thought for sure I was going away to prison after that. But what ended up happening was a few months later, might have been a month later, I found out that I wasn't going to prison, that they were going to settle with giving me the felonies and they were not going to make me go to prison and just be on probation for a few years. And that was a miracle. I mean, that was an absolute miracle for what they had caught me with, for what I was, you know, it's just like, that was a miracle. So, so what happened was I wasn't going to jail and now it's been a year. I'm a year sober. I'm a year like doing all these daily habits and I'm like, whoa, what am I gonna do with my life then? And so I'm like, I guess I'll go back to school, right? Because I failed out. I might as well go back and try to make that happen. And that's what I did. I went back to school. I finished my undergrad. So I got the psychology degree I was trying to get. And, and then, man, it just kept going. And, you know, I, 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 where do you want to go? Because from there, I just kept that going. I mean, I got another degree after that. I got my master's in counseling. You know, I just needed to prove to myself. I, I was not to prove to my mom. wasn't to prove to the world. It was to prove to me that I could make it happen by daily persistence and effort, even though the world would call me a felon, the world would call me an addict, the world would call me a fatherless college dropout. I, list, I did not listen to any of that. I listened to my inner voice. I listened to what I set out for my goals to be, and they they were accomplished. So, so th there are so many different directions we can go, but one of the first places that I, I want to dive into is when did you first kind of discover that you had uh, uh, an addictive personality per se, where you you found yourself finding addictions easy to pick up. I mean, to be honest, like at birth with sucking my thumb. <laughs> I well, mean, but, but you don't know at birth that you, you right. have addictive. Uh, right. That, but that you're, yeah. But I can tell you sucking the thumb though, I knew there was a problem because I would get made fun of and like beat up on my brothers. I couldn't stop doing it. And eventually like I stopped doing it because the pain of embarrassment was so great. I stopped doing it, but I would have kept doing it. But it was like, this is too, the pain's too real. But the 
where the real addiction started for me was internet pornography and game internet games. Like that's when I was really like, I'm consumed three to four or five hours a night doing this. And like, you know, I, I think it, just in the environment that I was in, you know, my mom's a single mom and she's doing her best and she's like, well, he's safe at home. Right. So I'm, uh, it's like, she didn't correlate to something bad because maybe you know, why not? It's just, he's safe he's home, he's safe. And so that's where it really began for me. That's where I really was like, wow, I probably have an issue, but I didn't think of it like that. I'm like, I don't care. This is what I'm doing. Mind your business. And so that's when it started. But obviously when I get to college, the signposts were right in my face being arrested, yeah. arrested by a state trooper and all those things. Definitely. So, so it, it sounds like when, when you were younger, there there were these different things that really ended up triggering the, the addictive, how, how do I say this, actions to come out more, right? And, and so what are, what are these things that people should be looking out for that can cause addictive behavior in other people? Does that make sense? I know that's an oddly structured question, but I think you get where I'm going. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, it, it's a tough question, but I can tell you that one of the things you want to look out for is like, if your mother or your father or your uncle, or your grandfather struggled with drugs and alcohol were, you know, alcoholics, like that could be an indication that's in your family that you might be more prone to it. Doesn't mean you're going to activate the genes to make that happen. It just means just to be aware of that. And I was told at a very young age, your dad was a, you know, really struggle with drugs and alcohol, you need to watch out. And I just went right past that signpost. I was like, that warning sign I could care less about. And so I smashed through the barriers. And the reality is, you know, that's one thing. Another thing is like, if you're like sitting, isolating, playing games, thinking it's harmless, well, if it's interfering with your work and your personal relationships and hitting your full potential, I'd probably look at that as like, that could be a potential to find other ways of escaping and it could lead to marijuana and it could lead to, and I'm not saying it's nothing, it's nothing wrong with marijuana. I'm just saying for some, it can be for me, it would be, but that could lead to eventually like other choices that could be poor and it could turn into internet. It could be behavioral addictions, gambling it could turn into internet pornography. So that's what you want to look at is like, how much time am I spending on these behaviors, right? That are causing me to isolate and not, be at my best. And, and if it's causing you problems and that there is actually an addiction there, but if it's not really hasn't caused you any problems, but it's really taking up a lot of your time, it's something to look at, even if you're 12 years old. Definitely. Cause, cause people who want to accomplish things in their life, those things are going to take time, right? So anything that is not in any way productive towards the ends of what you want to get to, becomes a problem. It may not seem like it right now, right? Because if I spend 30 minutes here, I spend an hour here, right? That's not that much time, right? But you compound interest that over time, right? Well, in a week, that's seven hours. In a month, right? That's 210 hours. And you, I mean, over a year, that's a lot of time. Right, right. And you calculate that over a few years, and then you're talking like you, you've literally lost years off your life. And it's, you know, so it's, it's, it's good to be aware. It's good to be aware. And today, my, one of the number one things for me is awareness. You know, I need to be aware. Where am I at right now? 
I need to check in with myself. And where that help, where I get help the most with that is probably meditation. Meditation probably is what helps me the most with being aware of where I'm at, what's going on, do a check-in. You know, so that's where I kind of check in with that awareness. Definitely. And, and I think awareness is, is such a lacking feature in today's world because we have so many things that are inputs into our lives that we can really drown out the ability to become aware of anything. I mean, heck, you, you, you get in your car, you put on music really loud, you get out of your car, you put headphones in, right? You go to work out, the headphones are still in. You, you go to a meal, you're looking at your phone for Facebook and stuff when things get quiet, right? These, these are all inputs that are automatically stopping awareness, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, exactly. We're more connected than ever. And that doesn't mean we're connected in a good way, you know? So, you know, and, and there's a famous saying, you know, Johan Hari said that the opposite of uh, addiction is not sobriety. The opposite of addiction is connection. And he didn't mean your cell phone connection to Instagram. <laughs> you know, he meant actual physical connection, being with someone eye to eye, heart to heart, having conversations that, that are worth having. And that's, that's what he meant. And I truly believe that that is one of the key elements to overcoming addiction too, is, is having that connection. And like, that's what it's been for me. I built really strong relationships throughout my recovery from addiction. And it's been a life-saving, life-changing uh, opportunity. And I still have that today. If you look at my life today, I intentionally have relationships where I can, that are called, that are safe relationships that I can share anything with. Everyone needs that, not just people in addiction. Everyone needs that. But especially if you have addiction or, you know, behavioral addictions or drugs and alcohol addictions or whatever it is, like you have to have connection. If you're isolating, you're feeding your addiction. And so I was a master isolationist. I mean, I, I was the master at isolation. And even today, like I might seem like I'm extroverted on this podcast, but I'm an introverted person by nature. Like I need to be by myself to re-energize, all that stuff. Um, so what's got me to be more extroverted outgoing is because I started to change new habits, you know, like cold showers. Like I started to do things that actually brought out my personality. And so that was helpful, but Overall, I still can isolate by nature. So I just have to make sure I'm, I have relationships that I can depend on that are safe. Definitely. And, and I think you need to find a good balance, right? Because there, I think there's times where everyone needs to step back and be a little bit alone. And I think there's a lot of times where people need to stop being alone and they need to go out and create these real connections. Because, because having a like on Facebook or having a share on Instagram or, you know, having a comment on LinkedIn or whatever other platform, these are not real connections that you're building when you do that. I mean, they, they, there's so much more that goes into a connection than just the letters or, or the thumbs up, you know, there's the eye contact, there's the, the, the body, uh, the, the way we express ourselves with our bodies and, and, it's really important to ourselves internally, right? To really focus and, and seek that out, I feel. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, there's really nothing like being with someone. You can feel their energy. You know, I'm all about energy. When you're with someone, you can pick up on energy and you can just have a relationship that you can't have on Zoom, right? Like you can, I mean, this is fun. I like doing this. I thank God for this. but. <laughs> It's 
not the same as if you're over my house and we're connecting, or maybe we, we go for a walk together, or maybe we just talk about what's going on in your world. Like that's a lot different when you're in person, we can feel each other's energy. We can feed off of it. And so, yeah, for sure. You need that bonding time face to face. Definitely. And, and it, I, I feel like one of the biggest things for you from, from the way you're telling everything that was the biggest problem was isolation, right? And then trying to figure out what do you do in isolation? Because from what it sounds like, while you were going through all these, these different sects of isolation, right? The, the recurring theme is that you were feeling pain right? Whether it's, it's someone was making fun of you of doing something. So you isolated yourself from, from them, or you caught yourself doing something like video games, right? And you desired that, right? More than getting around these other people. And that isolation fueled the pain and the pain fueled the isolation. Right. Yeah. And, and there's a, you know, there's a doctor's name, Dr. Gabor Mate. And he says, don't ask why the addiction, ask why the pain. And it's really, really smart because that's true. Don't ask me why I have this addiction. You're missing the mark completely. Ask why the pain, because it's always some type of pain, whether it's a trauma that happened in the past or something that's happening, a stressor, there's some type of pain there. And yeah, it's it's a great point. It, It does come back to pain. And, um, you know, a coping mechanism that we think is good is isolation, but it's completely the opposite. It's, it's not the right move. You do want to be out with people. You want to have your time when you're alone in stillness and meditation and that, of course, but you want to have a balance, like you said earlier, where you're doing both. And that's today my, that's my ultimate goal today is having the balance of, okay, now it's time to go do yoga. Okay. Now it's time to go to dinner, maybe with friends, but now it's time for me to come home. And now it's time to work on my purpose. Now it's time to work on my, you know, reading time or whatever it is with myself. And that's healthy too. And so, you know, it's definitely a, a balance and it's, it's, it's just, again, it, it's awareness, right? It's just being aware of these things. Most people are just going through life through the motions. They're not even aware. They have no idea what's going on and they're going with the flow and you get, you get smoked. Now there is a good flow and there's a bad flow, right? You can go with the flow, which is the flow of the universe, I, I would, which is what I would call it. And that's a good flow. Like, oh, there's a flow there. There's this dynamic flow that, that makes the earth spin. We don't know all the answers of why, how that's happened. That's a good flow. I'm not talking, that flow is a good flow. We're talking about the flow of just like, well, don't know what's going to happen today. I'll just kind of wing it and see what happens. And next year you're getting smoked and you're, e- you're eating bad foods and you're not exercising. You're playing video games. And you're on your phone eight hours a day. You know, look at the average time people are on their phones now. A day. How many hours a day? The average is over two hours now per, per, per person. It's not just like small. age group. That's yeah, kids, small. it's like eight hours a day. But I'm talking about like for general and yeah. two hours a day now. So that's not the good flow. We want to make sure we're in the flow. And I'm guilty of it too. Don't get me wrong. Like I can definitely get absorbed into my smartphone, absorbed into that and say, oh, it's for business. It's because I need to check for my business. But the reality is, when I'm on there, I'm like, oh, but what's this and what's that? And then I'm over here, I'm looking at what this person's doing. So, yeah. And you've isolated yourself from the purpose you were trying to get towards, right? Exactly. 
Yep. Um, and, and, and the crazy thing is like we're, this, we're talking about addiction here, but this same kind of concept applies if, if you're running a business, right? Like how often do we, do we go into our business, right? And we say, okay, these are the things I'm, I need to get done, right? But I'm going to focus in on email, right? Right. Email's just like another type of social media. It's not serving. Yeah. It's procrastination. It's not actually getting to the goals, right? And, and like, how often do you have people on your team that are not focused on getting work done? And they're just like, oh, well, you know, I'll come in today and we'll do whatever assignment comes up, right? How often does that happen? All the time. And then what happens to those businesses? They stagnate and then eventually they decline, right? Because mm-hmm. they're, not, they're not intentional about creating the, the teams focused towards the goals they're trying to get to. Right, right. It's, it's just like having, you, it's so key. Just like if you're in addiction recovery, you need to focus on your recovery. That's your goal. Focus on that recovery. What does that look like? If you have a business, focus on the mission, focus on the purpose. What is that mission? What's that purpose? As soon as you lose track of the purpose and the mission, you're checking your email, you're doing things that are not moving the priorities forward. If you don't have the clarity of what are our top three to five objectives? What, what's my top? And that could be your everyday life, right? Like, what's my goal today? So the night before, I always recommend this to people, like the night before, before your day starts, if you're not looking at your to-do list the night before, you're letting the day just take you because once you wake up and you hit the snooze button and you jump out of bed, the day's got you. You wanted the night before set your goals in alignment with if you have a, obviously if you have a business is really critically important to like, what are the top priorities tomorrow? What are my top three to five? But even if you don't have a business, what are the priorities tomorrow? I promised myself I would start that new diet. I promised myself I would do 20 minutes of yoga. I promised myself that I would read that book that just came out. Well, how are you going to get that done if you're not prioritizing the night before? Because or even in the morning, if you have a morning routine, you can kind of get to your to-do list in the morning. I respect that as well. But if you're not doing that, you're, you're going to lose track of what's important and you're going to get swept away in our land of convenience and our land of comfort. That's what we live in now. It's everything is comfort here now. And that's, you know, hence why I wrote a book called Smash Your Comfort Zone with Cold Showers is because we live in a time of comfort. I get it. I've been there. I live there too, but it doesn't pay off. It's very destructive. And to me, it could even be life-threatening, you know, to stay in that place for too long. You know, nothing grows in a comfort zone. You hear that. Literally everything you want is on the other side of your comfort zone. It's on the other side of fear. That's where everything lies. The unknown is a good thing. Like looking towards that. But if you need to have a plan to start out with and if you're not sure what that is, that's where you really want to start is like, hey, what do I really want to accomplish? Let's not even say this year. What do I want to accomplish this month? And then from there, go backwards, you know, and then visualize the staircase and the steps. So visualize backwards, like, okay, what are the, what's the first thing I need to do to get to that place? So, okay, my goal is to have, let's say your goal is to start to meditate 20 minutes a day. Well, if you're not even meditating one minute right now, Let's go ahead and start with like, okay, I'm going to meditate tomorrow for one minute. You have no excuse now. You know, there's a great book out, right? Atomic Habits by James mm-hmm. Clear. That book, I mean, if you're like, well, it's too much, it's overwhelming. What, you don't have one minute? 
You, everyone has one minute. You can meditate. Well, what does that matter? What difference is it going to make? It's going to make all the difference because once you do it for that one minute, you've set the time to do it. I guarantee you the next time you go to do it, you're going to be like, what if I do for two minutes? And all of a sudden, by the end of the 30 days, you've got to your 20 minute goal. Even if you got to 15 minutes, you were doing no meditation before this. In 30 days, now you have a 15 minute meditation habit daily. That 15 meditation, minute meditation habit stacked over the course of a year will change your life. And so that's why it's so important, you know. So yeah, we're kind of getting down the habit train, but this is really critical because your, your habits really determine your success. Definitely. And, and not just your habits, but the habits of those around you, right? Because your habits have a, a tendency to rub off on those around you and those around you, their habits have a tendency to rub off on you, right? That's why you get communities of people who are addicted to drugs or you have communities of people who are helping each other overcome the addictions, right? Right, exactly. So who you surround yourself, you know, there's so many famous quotes, right? Jim Rohn, you're the average of the five people you spend the most time with, right? Uh -huh. It's the truest statement. Like, you know, if I'm spending time, if I'm spending time with people who are not meditating, who are not doing yoga, let's just say if we're staying on that goal, like I'm not going to be meditating because I'm going to get around there and be like, why are you doing that? Why would you do that? Like you need to get around people that are like, Oh, I'm meditating an hour a day. Like, whoa, holy moly. Okay, I got to really step it up or at least now I have something to aspire to. So that's what I try to, I, I try to surround myself today with those type of people that are like, oh, hey, I'm going to run, um, I'm going to run a half marathon. They're like, oh, I'm going to run an ultra marathon. Like, holy moly. Like, so that's, that's what I like to be around is people that are like getting me uncomfortable because I'm like, whoa, like I want to learn from these people. So that's what I try to do is surround myself with people that inspire me to set bigger goals. And that's what I recommend for anyone. Just, you know, you can find those people. It's never been easier now in the history yeah. of our world to find people who are doing this. Go to the meetup, go to the meetup.com and find groups that are, you know, oh, I want to, I want to learn more about this Tony Robbins guy. There's meetup groups for that. Oh, I want to learn more about astrology. There's meetup groups for that. So you, nowadays you can find these groups, you can find that stuff. So, you know, there is hope. Oh yeah, definitely. And I, I mean, like one of the certifications I'm working on right now is with a group called Optimize. Their whole philosophy is how do you increase your, your levels of optimization in life so you can be a peak performer in your life? And, and one of the things we have to do at the, at the end of our certification is we have to run a Spartan race, right? Mm -hmm. And, and I'm like, like, I'd never even really gotten into what our Spartan race is till this year. And when I heard that, I'm like, well, you know what? I'm just going to go all in with this whole Spartan thing. Cause there are people in this community that are doing that. Let's do it. Right. So in even though that's not until December for that specific one I have to do, I'm going to do two before that one. Mm -hmm. um, I've got one. It's actually in a month from today, actually, I think mm. that I'm, I'm yeah. prepping for. And it like, this is stuff that I have not prepared for it, Like I've, I made the decision earlier this month, right? Which was about three weeks ago now ish right? Mm -hmm. Not quite. But I, I made the decision that I'm going to go for this. And I'm nowhere near prepared because I haven't, I haven't done any major physical activity since college to, yes. to my detriment. But these people, this community that I've surrounded myself with, they're pushing themselves to excel at a higher level, which makes me want to do the same thing. 
Exactly. Exactly. You got to get out of your comfort zone. You know, like I ran a marathon in 2017. I grew up with asthma. I'm not a runner. I look like a runner. I'm not a runner. I never ran. I don't like running. And I signed up for the marathon. Why? Because I knew I had to train. I didn't have a choice. I would have to run four days a week, no matter what. And guess what? I, I did it. I got the marathon out. It would have never happened, but I had put it in advance. I told other people I was going to do it. And I told the P, I had two people to stay accountable to that were running it with me. So that was the key is I had that accountability. And there's a marathon. So again, I stopped running recently. I haven't ran in like a couple months. I'm like, ah, you know, I'll, <clears throat> I'll get to running. I, I still do different, but I'm just not running. I do other exercise, but I'm not running. So I'm like, you know what? I'm signing up for a half marathon next, next month. That's because guess what? Now I can't, I, I'm like, oh my God, I got a half marathon. I got to run 13 miles next month. I got to start running. So that's what I just did. So as of yesterday, I committed to running a half marathon next month. Now you don't have to be that extreme, but you could even do like, Hey, I'm going to do a 5k in two months. And you know what? Just be, and pay for it in advance. As soon as you go to the website, pay for it. Because yep. now you, you've invested your money. Now there's some there's skin in the game. And just like this marathon, it's like, okay, there it is. Skin's in the game. I asked some people to run it with me, whether they do or not. Last time I signed up for this half marathon, I had someone say, yep, I'm going to do it. And they paid for it and never ran it. it. Came race day. They weren't there. I was. And I finished the race by myself. So I'll still show up because I'm doing it for me. End of the day, I'm not doing it for them. I'm doing it for myself. And, and I feel great, right? Because I have to run three or four days a week. And you just feel better. You eat better too because you're like, well, I could eat this pizza every day. <laughs> but I have to run. So maybe I won't. Maybe I, maybe I like the salad with you know, this fruit. And so one decision changes other habits. So yeah, definitely, man. Oh, good luck with your Spartan race. Thank you. And good luck with your half marathon. That's going to be awesome. And, and one, one of the big things that I heard in that, right, is the decision you make has to be for you, right? Mm -hmm. You didn't make the decision to run that marathon because your friend decided to do it. You had already made the decision that you were going to do it for yourself. And so often we set goals because there's this, there, there's a societal perspective that wants us to accomplish that kind of a goal or our parents wanted us to accomplish that goal or that's where we believe people want the business to head to right and then at the end of the day we don't really make great efforts towards it because it's not for us right it's for whatever else and that's not really motivating it's got to be for you at the end of the day yeah exactly exactly you know it's got to be, it's got to be for you. And it's the same with sobriety, recovery from drugs and alcohol. At the end of the day, it's got to be for you. You know, if it's not about you and doing that, eventually something's going to get in the way of it and you're going to lose it. It's got to be what you want to have. And sometimes, you know, they'll say fake it till you make it. And maybe you have kids and you're doing it for them. If you have to do that in the beginning, great. But eventually it has to be become about you and your mission, your purpose because we all have a reason to be here. We all have a purpose. And so we might not know what it is. We've clouded it with many mind chatter, limited beliefs that we've collected over the years. But the reality is we all have a purpose here and we can find what that is. But all it starts with is saying, I'm doing this for me. You know, I got that master's for me. It wasn't to prove I was smart. It wasn't to prove, I mean, I was, I mean, you kidding me? I failed out of college. I was a C-level student. I mean, like, I did that because I said, I need to do this for myself. And I studied hard. I was super persistent and I did it. And that's the same how I live my life today. It's like, I'm going to, I'm going to set these goals up in advance, pay for them and pay for these things. So I have to commit to them. 
And when it comes to the race day or the goal, if no one's standing by me, it's okay. I'm doing it because it's not for them. It's for me. And so you're showing your mind evidence that you can handle it. And no matter what happens, you can handle it. And that's really important. Definitely. And, and, and one, one of the things that I was thinking about, because you, you said it, is, is a lot of people make the goals because of how they think it'll be better for the people they care about, right? Like, I, I, I want to get better for my kids, right? And that works only to a point. But the thing is, you can actually shift some of those to where it's still about the kids, but it's not for them, right? Because if you want to get better, right, for the kids, you don't get better for the kids. You get better because you're going to have better opportunities to spend time with the kids, right? And that's for you. That's not for them, right? Because if it's for them, it's like they get time to spend with you. That's mm -hmm. great and all, right? But that doesn't really motivate us. But like, do you want to get better so you can see your kids grow up, get through school so that you can be in a good state to actually help them through their troubles that they get to so that you can be a hero to them? Like that's a motivating factor right there so that you can be a hero to them, mm -hmm. right? And a lot of times these, these things we try and put off to other things, we can very easily make a slight adjustment to make it for ourselves. Mm. Absolutely. Yep. Completely agree. <laughs> so, so tell me about, well, actually I, I was going to ask about that. I'm going to get back to that question. Um, so, so I, I, I work with leaders and one of the things that happens with leaders is sometimes we see challenges happening, not necessarily with ourselves, but with those that we are leading, right? And so, so say that we're seeing someone who's going through an addiction or we see someone who's really isolated themselves, right? What are things that someone who's a leader can do to try and help that person? And at the end of the day, right, the person has to make the changes on their own for themselves, right? You can't force them to make the changes, but there's still a role the leader can play, right? Yeah, of course. Number one for me is always compassion. Number one is compassion always come from the lens, always come from the place of compassion, as hard as it can be. Because the end of the day, the last person someone needs is shame. They have enough shame, trust me. If they're doing these behaviors, the shame is thick. They don't need any more shame from someone else. So they'll avoid you like the plague. So the key is if you're a leader coming to someone who has someone who has addiction, is to come from a place of compassion, genuine interest and concern. And if you do that, in that manner, then when you approach that person, more than likely they may have a conversation with you. But if you're coming from a place of judgment, coming from a place of you need to change your habits, you need to do this, they're going to shut you off because the world is doing that to them. And they're not going to, they're not going to respond to that. So come from a place of compassion. Yeah. And curious. a lot of times, a lot of times they're doing it to themselves too, right? They shut themselves out because yeah. they, they're already experiencing that shame and that it's almost like this vicious cycle, right? They right. feel the shame, they shut themselves off further, which makes them feel more shame, which makes them shut themselves off further. Exactly. So come to them with a place of compassion and genuine curiosity. Hey, how's everything going in your world? 
and wait to respond. Don't say anything. Don't go, hey, man, I hear you having trouble with some, some substances and like, what's going on? That's not the way to do it. You know, because ask it's them, how's it going? Right? How's it going? Yeah, like, how's it going in your world? What's going on? Just let, let them talk. You'll learn a lot just by listening. One of the greatest skills ever given to humankind was the skill of listening. So listen to what people are saying. And when you hear them, you might hear things and then know where to take the conversation from there because you can just trust your instincts and go, wow, okay, this person is struggling right now. I can sense that. Let me just listen a little more. Well, tell me more about that. And Definitely. Let them tell, you know, so don't, don't bring the, you know, it's like parents have a real hard time with that. They're like, Hey, I heard that you're smoking weed or whatever. It's like, it's like, Whoa, Whoa, the walls go right up. You know, it's like, no way get out of my life. Right. That's not the way to do it. Come with a genuine curiosity from compassion because at the end of the day, you really care about them. And by showing that you you're, when you come at them with a place of judgment or throwing it on that, that is going to put up the defense mechanism. So come from a place of compassion. That's the first rule. Then be a great listener too. And then three, when they actually talk, you don't have to get to what you want to say. It's not about your agenda. It's about now they felt heard and listened to. Now walk the hell away. And the next time they have a problem, they might come to you. And if they don't, that's none of your business too. Even if it's someone you love, you have to let go and let that happen. But show them you're a person that listens, that has compassion. And now they'll start to build trust so that the next time they feel pain, they may say, I can come to this person. We, you know, people in addiction are smart. We pick up on people that are the police. And I don't mean the actual police. I mean, the people who are trying to like tell us how to live our lives. Trying to be a detective, right? Trying to be a detective. We don't need more of that. What we need is compassion. There's pain there. We need people who are going to listen to us and eventually we'll come to you when we need you and we'll help and we'll share that. And it's really tough when you have someone who's an active addiction, who's really struggling and they're impacting your life because of their decisions to not go out and just be like, that's it, intervention, call the police, get this done. It's really hard not to do that, but there's time, there's a time and a place where you need, where, where the, the, the approach is compassion and, and people are not going to like to hear that. But anytime people call me, I have people call me all the time about how do I approach my brother? How do I approach my son? How do I approach my friend in college? How do I, it's like, number one is compassion coming from a place of compassion. And then two is listening, listening to what they're saying. And then three there might be no goal at the end of this. There may not be a place where you get to have that conversation because they are just sensitive people. Like at the end of the day, we're sensitive people and we want to be heard. We want to be listened to. And if we feel that connection, we might come back to you later, but we're not going to solve our problem by that one conversation that we're having. It's going to be a built trust. Definitely. And, and that's how anything that's huge in life really is, right? So, so often we get this, it, we, we live in a microwave nation, right? If, if I'm hungry, I throw food in the microwave and 30 seconds later, three minutes later tops, I have food ready to go. If, I, if I'm on the road, I go to a fast food restaurant and I have food ready to go. I want to watch TV. Okay, let me pull out my phone and I can watch something on my phone. And we, we have all these things that are in, just instantaneously in front of us. And, and then we watch movies, right? Where your hero is like, they go from zero to hero in a, in a two minute montage, right? And we expect like, oh, if they can do it in two minutes, I can do it. And, and when you say that, it sounds ridiculous. But then like you have people go to the gym for a week 
and they expect that all their, their, they're supposed to have these huge muscles and noticeable changes and it doesn't happen like that. Mm-hmm. And, and we bring that same kind of mentality into everything, right? Even, even if you're trying to build a business, right? You bring in this mentality that, oh, I should be a multimillionaire within a couple months, right? And that rarely happens. We're talking like 0.000001% of the time it happens like that. And, and when, when you're facing someone with addiction, right, these are things that most people who have addictions, they've been facing it for a large portion of their life. It's not mm-hmm. going to get solved overnight. It's not going to get solved with one conversation. It's going to take time. It's going right. to take that time to build that trust with them so that you even have the ability to bring in your voice, right? Exactly. Exactly. It, ta- it takes time. Just like, like, just like you said, with any, even a business relationship, all of it, it takes time to build trust, especially, especially when it comes to people in addiction recovery, as hard as it may seem. Because there's so much stigma. I mean, this is, a, this is a place of the greatest stigma. Mental health, addiction, there's so much stigma. We feel like it's a choice. We feel like it's a, it's a oh, it's just a bad habit. You're, you're, you're making poor decisions. Get your life together. Like if it was that easy, at 18, I would have done that. At 18, I would have said, you know what? I'm going to get my life together. I'm going to get on the straight and narrow. I'm going to get everything set, situated. Not that simple. And so, yeah. that's, so there's a deep stigma there. And so that's the problem is, is we have a deep stigma of like, you're, you're choosing to do all this. It's your choice. Everything you're doing is, you know, it's your, it's, you're just ultimately choosing to, to shoot heroin every single day and just live your life miserably. When if they were to take the time to learn a little bit about how it might work for someone who actually is in that place, that it's a little more complicated than just that choice. There's deep, 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 deep pain. And it could be trauma and many things behind that. That so when they do get s- clean, sober, and tr- sobriety, it's not going to be an overnight fix either. It's not going to be like, well, now I put the needle down, now I put the alcohol down, now I put the internet pornography down. I'm all better. Never going to have to look back at that or be tempted by that again. Are you kidding me? Especially with internet pornography, that's everywhere. So it's like, you know, you, that's just the start. Sobriety is just neutral. Now you just from addiction to neutral. You got to get to abundance and excellence. You got to get over here. How am I going to get here? That's the journey. It took me nine years to finish my degree the second time. Okay. So it took nine years. Didn't take nine days, nine months. I mean, nine years. I never gave up. And so that's the key. It could take you 10 years to be the overnight success. But you know what? That's the truth. You know, if you want the sugar coat, we can give you that. But that the truth is that it's going to take extraordinary effort. It's going to take time. It's going to take, you know, trusting. And, and believing in yourself. So it's a journey, you know, it is a marathon. It is a journey. So yeah, absolutely. And, and it's, it's, it's such a more difficult journey for someone who's in that addiction because, because a lot of times there's these underlying chemical processes that are happening that have deeply gotten rooted in habits. Right. And so, so like, even if it's if it's not a literal physical addiction like many of your drugs literally create that addiction right even if it's an emotional addiction right those still have chemical processes that are getting deeply rooted in the habits um and i i i had a um interview with uh with a guy named Jeff Jones who does um family 
recovery solutions. Um, I know Jeff. I know okay, Jeff. Okay, Jeff's awesome guy. So I'm yeah. happy you know him. Um, and and he he was talking. I, I remember one of the quotes. Um, he he was saying how a lot of people say like, "Oh, I'm just going to send Joey off to the you know off to the center to get healed," and you know, 60 days later he's going to come back and everything's going to be okay. And right. then that's not what really happens usually, right? Exactly. It's, it's, it's a, it's a lifelong journey. No one wants to hear that, but it's a lifelong journey. You know, you know, yeah, it's, it's, it's not, you don't go for 28 days and all of a sudden you're like, here we go. Like, I'm good. I'm going to, I'm going to get my life in order. I'm going to go, I'm going to go back to school. I'm going to get my car. Like, that's not how it works. And you know, you got to be okay with that. And the person who's in addiction, who is going through that needs mentors and needs people to show him and tell him that like, Hey, this is going to take time. This is a journey. We'll come along with you. This is not like, all right, now get your act together, you know, cause now you're back in the real world in 28 days. And it's like, that's not enough time. I need like 18 months. So, you know, the reality today is it's, it's spin dry, throw them out, throw her out. And then you're back in the world and that's not a great thing. So we have a broken system, obviously that needs to yeah. be addressed, but that's some of the work I'm trying to do today. And, and a lot of and people that I know are trying to address that. But at the same time, it's, yeah, I mean, it's, it, it is a journey and it takes time and it's okay. And the good news is it's okay. It's fine because all that stuff you're going through is what it's doing. It's like, it's like putting, it's like a, like a, a sore being made. It's just, it's just getting stronger and stronger and stronger and you're building more resilience to the point where by the time you say, hey, you know what? I'm going to go back to school or, hey, I'm going to start this business. You've already went through hell. Nothing can stop you. The reality is I've already fought all my hardest battles, okay? I've already fought the hard battles. So go being an entrepreneur today, I faced stress and all these things, but it was nothing like it was. So I'm able to be resilient. So that's, an, that's a, a trait of an entrepreneur in recovery in a lot of ways. I've already been through. That's why I called my business Entrepreneur's Recovery is because I've been through all that heat and fire. So now as an entrepreneur, I can handle a lot of that stress because I have self-care practices in place to deal with it because I had no choice. I didn't do my self. It's not like, hey, I'm going to do yoga, meditation, and go to these groups and like get all this wisdom because I'm just like bored this weekend. It was because <laughs> it was life and death. It was because I had to learn it. And now I'm actually, it's, it's my life got so good by doing that, that people who are not in addiction recovery are like, Hey, I want to learn from this guy because it's, a, it's like, wow, everyone needs that. Everyone needs some self care. Everyone needs some of that. And so, yeah, so there you go. Definitely. And it, it's one of those things I, I feel like so many people face challenges in their life, right? Quote unquote challenges. And, and the level of challenge that they're, they're fighting quote unquote is so little compared to so many big problems that are happening in the world. And like, I've, I mean, I've been guilty of this too, where I've been like caught up in the nonsense going up on in my life, but it's not that big of a thing in comparison to some of the things other people have battled. And so when, when you can learn what, when someone goes through these exceptionally difficult trials how did they do that when I'm having challenges here with, with my just little challenge in comparison, right? Yeah, there's a lot we can learn from. We, we can learn a lot from people. And, you know, since you have me on your podcast, we can learn a lot from people in addiction recovery. And that's where we're lacking the most. We're focusing so much on the problem. We're not looking at, well, what about the people that are 
in recovery. Why don't we study those people? And that's what we're missing the boat on. We're not studying the people that are successful with addiction recovery. We're focusing on the epidemic and the problem and all those things. We're not focusing on where are the solutions that the people who already are in addiction recovery doing and then encompassing all those solutions together and then giving that to the people. And that's really one of my missions is like, why don't we get all the answers from the people who are in addiction recovery thriving and they have something we need to know about, why don't we study them and then bring out solutions instead of being like, well, this worked in the 70s. Well, I guess it might work today. It's like, what are you talking? That's the dumbest thing I've ever heard. <laughs> and so that's why we need to have a new approach and a new method. We need to learn from what works. We do this in other industries. So why don't we do it in this one? So that's, that's really my argument is like, we need to study. And, and that's, that's, that's where we're heading anyways. That's where I'm heading with my work is we're going to study what works. And that's what needs to be brought out. Definitely. And, and I think that's actually a challenge that's pervasive in many different industries. Sure. We're so Absolutely. caught up in the problem, right? I mean, look at politics, right? No one likes to talk about politics. That's how bad it is, right? They're, they're like, oh, we're not going to talk about politics. Like, that, that's too divisive, right? Well, that's a problem if we can't talk about it. <laughs> you know what I mean? That, that only tells you how many things need to get fixed with it. Right. And if, if we're not actually looking at what are the good things that are happening or or worse, there are no good things happening. That's where real problems are, you know, and and, you know, that's I mean, that's just politics. But I mean, how often do we just focus on the problems in parents or the problems in marriage or the problems in business or just just problems in general, right? Our news is completely focused on problems, right? 95% of it highlights problems that are happening around the world. And 5% of it is, is talking about a portion of a solution. And they, they don't even dive into the solution. They're just all like, oh, here's the solution. Okay, it's gone, right? Like now back to the, the breaking story of this terrible thing happening in the world. Like- right. It's so pervasive that we're focusing only on the problems. We need to focus on how do we overcome the problems? Right. Yeah, that's a rabbit hole we could go down. But yeah, that's <laughs> true. Yes, it is. We, we need to focus on the solutions, but that's definitely a, a place. Yeah, that's a rabbit hole, a deep one. So, so you, you were talking about this within the, the context of addictions. And what are, what are the the big things you're finding in your, your study of overcoming addictions that you feel like isn't getting highlighted well? Well, today my work, you know, with the work I do today, so what I do is I develop something called Entrepreneurs Recovery Workshops and Facilitation, and it's backed in appreciative inquiry, it's backed in new science, it's backed in experiential learning theory. And what I do is I take groups of people who are in addiction recovery, who are at the earliest stages of addiction, all the way to the many years in addiction, we get them together in groups. What we do is we take them through this, this process of asking generative questions that are relevant to their life, like, when was the time you were at your best? When was a challenging time? all these different questions that we pull out high point stories and then we study these stories by having them share with each other heart to heart one-on-one and then we do group sharing and then from there what we do is we pull out the strengths we pull out the values we pull out the visions of the future of these participants and then we actually set action plans and goals 
around the future that they most want to create. That's not happening today in addiction recovery. That's what I do with my groups and that's what I do with people. So what I'm learning is that people, even in early, early, early recovery, the first few weeks are super resilient and they have great ideas about what may work, but we're not asking them what may work. We're telling them what may work. That's not the way to go. So we need to open up more to the idea of asking the right questions, of taking people through a better transformational process of conversations worth having that you can have with them. And that's what I do. I take people through a one hour or a three hour, but it's typically a one hour transformational pr process called Entrepreneurs Recovery Workshops. And I do this at treatment centers. I do that at sober living homes. I do this with Entrepreneurs Recovery. And I get to see and witness their images of the future, which will blow your mind. And then I get to hear their action plans and goals that they have. No one's teaching this. So that when I do it, they're like, this was so helpful. I can't believe this. I have these goals. I could do this. It's like, you should have been learning this the whole time, but no one teaches you this. School doesn't teach you that. College doesn't teach you that. Treatment doesn't teach you that. Maybe some places do. I'm not saying all, but most yeah. don't. And so that's, that's what I do in my work today is what I've discovered is that by taking people through empowering conversations that they can have together, one-on-one -on -one pair sharing heart-to-heart, -heart, group sharing, large group sharing this, these conversations that are like choreographed conversations in groups in a circle, you can learn a lot about people and addiction recovery. You know, you don't have to go read a book. You can just take someone through this group and be like, wow, they're super resilient. They have strengths. They have inner resources. You can't give away something to someone that they already have. We're trying to give people something they already have. And so that's what we need to teach them that they already have that and then use those inner resources to then build a life. Because when you're in addiction recovery, you don't get to stay in the bubble of treatment for more than 28 days. Now, if you're lucky enough to stay in a, a extended sober living, you're lucky. Most people don't. 90% of people don't even find treatment. 90%. Think about if we have cancer. People have cancer if 90% of people couldn't find treatment. Never would happen. But because of where we are today, 93% of people ages 18 to 24 can't, don't, go, don't find treatment for addiction. 7% of that age group. What's wrong, right? So there's something broken. And that's what we need to do is we need to have new conversations. And how do we get these people, these millennials, these young people into conversations to try to get them into a treatment, to get them help so that they can break the free of addiction. And that's really where we're at. That's what the work I'm doing today is how do we do that? And I do that with my groups and I'm trying to bring that into more treatment centers. And that's what I'm trying to do is making more conversations with the people that are actually facing the addictions. Definitely. So, so, so some of the big highlights that I got in there is one, not, not just people facing addiction, but people in general already have strengths, right? Yeah. And we don't have to give them strengths. A lot of times they already have them. And one of the ones with addiction specifically that is commonly found, it seems, is resilience, right? Because they need to have that resilience in order to survive, right? Right. Yeah. My first group, I, so my workshops that I do, Entrepreneurs Recovery Workshops, my first group is called Building Resilience and Recovery. That's the name of my first workshop, Building Resilience and Recovery. And so that's what we do. We tap into stories of resilience because in the stories, if you're in addiction recovery, you're resilient. If you're in addiction and you got through it and you're sitting in a treatment center or you're in a sober living home or you're 10 years into recovery, you're a resilient person because you had to go through a lot of trials to get there. So we can study that. We can study the resilience and then we can pull out 
obviously there's strengths. If you have resilience, there are strengths. So you can pull out strengths. Not, you know, resilience, of course, is one, but you can pull out other strengths that people have. And those strengths, they can leverage when life gets hard. Life is going to be hard. It's going to challenge you, right? It's not about comfort and convenience. That's what gets you in the mess to begin with. You know, you have to get out of the comfort. So when that happens and stuff gets really uncomfortable and you can't escape anymore, you got to find a new coping tool. It's that's when you leverage your own inner strength and resources. And then you leverage out to other people and you connect. And that's what I teach in the groups. It's not about just, yeah, you had, now you know you have these inner resources, but then use those to connect to people, give those gifts to other people, help others, serve others, do that. And then set actions and goals around what your ultimate mission is that you want to accomplish. Maybe it is to just become a chef, which is amazing. Maybe it is just to become a PGA golfer. And I'm just saying just. But the, the bottom line is like you can start to set goals and you can do that right away, right when you're in early sobriety. And that's what I teach people. Don't wait a year to set goals. Are you kidding me? That's a, that's, this is life and death. Start setting goals day three and say, oh, tomorrow, here's my goals. I wrote them out. Tomorrow, I have to get up. I got to shower. I got to brush my teeth. I got to go to a treatment. I got to call my mentor. I got to call my sponsor. Those are the goals I'm talking about. And then eventually when you leave treatment and you go into the next phase, what are your new goals? Okay, I need to call my sponsor. I need to go to work. I need Those are goals though. And then eventually, guess what? A year later, you're like, all right, I got to go to my job. I got to work hard. I want to get that new position. And then in time, what are the new goals, right? Oh, I need to go. I want to go back to school. I want to chase my dreams. I want to talk to entrepreneurs recovery. Bam. Now you're on, see, you set the tone with those small habits of action planning and it's stacked and multiplied. Small changes over time equal colossal change. So you have that opportunity when you start setting goals. And that's, you ask me what I do and what I teach. That's what I teach. Start setting goals now, even if they're little, little goals, those goals are going to be huge come five years from now. Definitely. And, and that, that has so much power in all of life. Right. And, and it's, you see how much power it has within the world of addiction, just because addiction itself is such a difficult thing to overcome. Right. But when you start doing those little things over and over and over again, and then you get a little bit better and a little bit better and a little bit better, all of a sudden you've overcome one of the most difficult things to face in the world. Absolutely. Absolutely. So, so tell me about your book. Okay. Yeah. So the book that I wrote that came out in November is called Smash Your Comfort Zone with Cold Showers. Which it's, sounds uh, terrible to me because I like really warm showers. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, so the subtitle is How to Boost Your Energy, How to Defeat Your Anxiety, and How to Overcome Unwanted Habits, okay? The reason I made that subtitle is because that's what happened to me. And that's what happened to the people that I said, hey, take cold showers for 30 days. Whether they, whether they were 17 years old or literally 79 years old, that was the ages that I was giving these, this information to. They had these experiences. So... What really sparked the book, I'll just make this quick. What, what sparked the book was that I dealt with social anxiety. I alluded to that in my addiction story. I alluded to that. Even in recovery, I had addiction. I, even 10 years of recovery from addiction, I still was facing social anxiety. And so it wasn't as bad as it was, but it was there and it was keeping me from definitely living my best life. Even though I had accomplished a lot, it was not it was still there and it was really troublesome that I still had it. So my friend who's very intuitive came into my house and said, you need to take cold showers. And I'm like, there's no way I'm taking cold showers. It's December, <laughs> New Hampshire, not going to happen. My roommate at the time, it was destiny. He ran upstairs, 
turned the water cold. I ran up there. I'm like, he's not really doing this. And I felt the water was freezing. And I walked away. He took the cold shower. And I said, I can't be showing up at my own house. So I turned the shower cold. I ran into the bath. Well, I was in the bathroom. I turned the shower cold. I played the music. I jumped in. Now, I had no idea how to do the cold shower. I'd never done one before. In my book, I tell you how to take the straight cold shower. But I didn't have a book. So I just jumped in. I hit me in the face. It was super. I lost my breath. But I stayed in for the five minutes. I came out. I was red. But here's what happened. Two hours later, I went to a meeting, a meeting I had always gone to. And something was different. What was different was there was no anxiety this time. And I was like, this is impossible. Like I was like a human experiment. Like I went to school for psychology. <laughs> I got my counseling degree. I was like using it on myself. And now like, and I still had the anxiety and I, and I was like, and now I take the shower that's cold and I don't have it. I'm like, how is that possible? So I did the showers for 30 days. I did it through Christmas. I did it through New Year's. And at the end of the 30 days, not only did I feel incredible, I was like, my anxiety has reduced so much. What else can be possible if I just keep doing these things? So I never stopped. I ended up winning a, a, a trip to Switzerland because I was just really doing well at work. I took cold showers in Switzerland. I just didn't stop. And you know what happened? My anxiety, not only did it reduce down to the bare minimum, I started taking big risks. I started to smash my comfort zone, literally. I, I ended up like signing up to go to this like uh, entrepreneur conference. I wasn't an entrepreneur, but I went there and I got you know the seed planted about entrepreneurship. And then what happened? I ended up, go into their conference. And guess what I did? I signed up to sign up to run for a marathon. And then what I do, I quit caffeine. And then what, and like, it just kept going. I'm like, what else can I do to smash my comfort zone? And eventually by the time 2017 came around in March, someone said to me, Hey, who are you? And I was like, well, I'm me. And I take cold showers. And they were like, why do you take cold showers? I was like, well, it helped me overcome anxiety, social anxiety. It helped me. And so they're like, wait a minute, what? Like, why don't you write a book about that? And I'm like, no, I don't want to write a book about that. <laughs> and, and then by the, time I, by the time I was leaving that conference, I'm like, you know what? I'm going to write a book about this. In three months, I wrote a book about it. And guess what? After three months of writing the book, then, I had, then your perfectionism and fear kicks in. And I was like, well, hold on. It needs to be perfect. So then I ended up talking to this cold shower expert, literally, Dr. Alexa Fleckenstein, who's from Germany, who wrote the book. She literally like, wrote the book that talks about the healing powers of water. And I met her in Boston. I had, all the, I had all the reason to release my book now. And I was like, well, no, hold on. And then I had an opportunity to publish the book. And I waited four months to hear back. And basically, the agent was like, hey, we're not going to publish this book. And know what I did? I said no to the book. I said, forget the book. So this is a lesson, okay? My book, I started in April of 2017. And I let it go in like December or January of 2018. And I never picked it up again until August of 2018. Why? Because of perfection and fear. And you know what happened? In August, I got back around that person that asked me about the book in March of 2017. To, and she said, hey, where's your book? I thought you were going to write a book on cold showers. And it hit me at the deepest gut level. It literally hit me right in the gut. I'm like, oh, you're right. Pow! I said I would do something and I didn't fall through. And you know what? When I left that event, from August to November, I edited and wrote every day, and it came out on 11-11-2018. So I stuck to my promise. It's a short book. Oh, my God. It's, it's 82 pages, but it's really like 49 pages. And the, the, the audiobook is one hour and seven minutes. I mean, you can't get shorter. And like the book is so short. 
but it's, I, I intentionally wrote it like that. It's repetitive at times. I intentionally did that. It's to get the point across about the power of getting out of your comfort zone every day. And I just happened to use cold showers. It was very helpful for me to do that. And also, so I don't scare all the listeners away from the cold showers, you don't have to take a straight cold shower. You can literally take a warm shower and end it cold for 30 to 60 seconds, and it's still going to work for you. I just have to take them straight cold because I had a lot of social anxiety problems, and I had a lot of goals I need to accomplish, so I still take them straight cold. It's been three years, and I just keep taking them straight cold, but that's what works for me. And if you get the book, you can see like, oh, okay, this is how I take a straight cold shower because I tell you how to do it. Definitely. And, and one, I, I think that short books are highly underrated because what I've found is that sometimes the shortest books are some of the most powerful books that are in existence. I mean, I'm, I'm, I've got my bookshelf right in front of me. And I, I, I've got a few that I can name right now that I know are short books that I read within a day that were extremely powerful in their message. Um, Go for No is one of them. It's a fantastic book on sales. Who Moved My Cheese? About what happens when, uh, I, I don't want to ruin that one, but that's a very funny book that people should read. There's this. There's another one called Acres of Diamonds. It's like, 20, 30 pages and the, the message in it is huge. And so, so sometimes the amount of information isn't the quality of the information. I, I wanted to throw that out there. Yeah, precisely. And the bottom line is the end of the day, I wrote my book and again, I didn't write it for that person. I didn't write it for the audience. I wrote the book for me. It was a, my personal goal. Now the next book I'm writing right now that goal is not just for me. That goal, that book is for people. It is for people in addiction recovery to teach them how to go from survival to thriving. And so that is true. I am writing it. But this book, you know, it's like, I, I, I mean, I did write this for people that I thought of that I'm like, oh, okay, this book is going to be for people that do struggle. Because if you're struggling and you jump in that cold water, guess what? Your pain, your, all the struggles go away quickly. All you're focusing on is your breath. It's very meditative, cold showers. You just focus on your breath uh, as it hits you, and, and you can feel, you just feel that cold water. What it does is it actually is obviously releasing chemicals in your brain as well, but you just know that you can only focus on that one thing. You're not worrying about traffic. You're not worrying about, oh God, I got to make sure I get a coffee before. You're just in the moment. And it's so important to sit in that time. Like to me, it's a sacred place. And people say, well, that's why I'm not taking a cold shower because that's my sacred space. Well, your sacred space could also be the place that ha you have the biggest breakthroughs are with, with your actual um, physiology. You know, cold showers changed my physiology completely, you know? And, and so I'm just saying, you can take your warm shower, end it cold and do a 30 day cold shower challenge. It can change your life. Definitely. So, so what would you add into this conversation that you think we should talk about that we haven't talked about yet? I mean, I think we covered a lot of things. I think really the, the important thing is like, you know, there is a process to things. Okay. There's, there's, there's things that you can do to have success and you can follow success leaves clues. If you want to be successful, find someone that, you, that inspires you and try to have lunch with them. 
if you can't get to that person, buy their books and their audiobooks, learn and study them, and then go to their conference. You say, well, I can't afford it. Start saving, stop drinking coffee, stop drinking, stop smoking cigarettes, stop, cut back on some habits and you'll be able to afford it because it's going to be worth you getting around it because you're in that, when you're in that environment, you're in a different state, you make different decisions and you might make a decision that could alter your life. So start to find people who are, who have what you want and study them. That's what I did early on. And so now today I still do that more than ever. And so like, you know, find it. And you might find a method that they have. You might find like some habits that they do that you start to emulate. And all of a sudden you're doing two of these habits and you're just like, oh my God, my life is slowly starting to change. And that's, that's the biggest advice I give to people is find the people that have what you want and start to study them. Just, you know, buy their books, buy their audios, ask them to lunch, add value to them. And eventually you'll start to realize that they're just a human being that just ended up finding mentors and coaches and different ways to get to where they are. And then you're not, and then you're like, Oh really? And then you can realize you can do the same thing. Definitely. It's so, so often we put people up on a pedestal, right? They, mm-hmm. they, they've got it all. It had to have been so easy for them and, and all these things. Um, one of, one of my mentors, John Maxwell, he, he's written over a hundred books or, or book derivatives, right? And, and you're thinking like, wow, he must be an absolute genius to have written over a hundred books. And, and he's, he's a funny guy if you listen to him because he, he, he talks about how he's not really that smart and he hated most of his first books. But what he does every single day is he writes. Mm-hmm. Every single day he writes a little bit. And because he's just done a little bit of writing every single day, it's gotten better over time. It's, it's become more coherent. He's been able to write longer and it's become a hundred books, which most people would dream of like not even thinking is possible for them. Right. Mm -hmm. But, but if you just do those little things every single day, just the little things right before you know it, you've overcome addiction, you've written a book, you've mm-hmm. created a business, you've gotten the promotion of your job, you've raised wonderful kids. All those things happen one little piece at a time. Yes, and he has, and I'll just kind of wrap it with this, he has one of my most favorite quotes of all time, which is, you'll never find success unless you change something you do daily. The secret of your success is found in your daily routine. Mm-hmm. Brilliant. And he's a prime example of that. Yeah, exactly. Because um, he, one of his most famous things he talks about is his rule of five, right? And, and you can look up, he's got lots of conversations about his rule of five. You can find it just about anywhere, podcasts or YouTube. I mean, you don't even have to pay to find it. But he talks about what are the, what are the he does five things every single day. And they're not like these grandiose things. It's not, I'm writing an entire book today, right? It's mm-hmm. just, I'm writing a little bit today. I'm reading a little bit today. I'm storing a little bit of information today. And that's what's led to his huge success. And that's what's led to your success as well, is you've done the little things. You've taken a cold shower every single day. You wrote a little bit every single day. You know, you, you, you got around the right people in your life 
right? And those people helped you every single day. You got yourself away from the, the drugs every single day. That's all it is. It's all it is. It's, it's available to anyone. And um, that's really the, 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 the end message as it is available to anyone. My friends, if you knew my friends, my friends were heroin addicts, daily heroin addicts, and now they own businesses locally here, successful, hiring people who are in addiction recovery now. So it's possible. And just get around the people that you want to be around, reach out. And, um, you know, and, and uh, yeah, like I said, it's, it, it is possible. And um, it's, been an, it's been awesome being on this podcast with you, Cody. Definitely. Thanks. It's been awesome having you. And talking about reaching out, if someone's trying to reach out to you, what are the best ways they can go about doing that? Yeah, I mean, you can reach out to, you can email me, jesse at jesseharless.com. You can go to my website, jesseharless.com, or you could go to entrepreneursrecovery.com to learn more about that. Or you can go to recoveryfacilitation.com, which is the work I'm now doing in what I was describing on this podcast, Entrepreneurs Recovery Workshops. That's awesome. And Jesse, that's J-E-S-S-E. Harless is H-A-R-L-E-S-S. And we'll have that all in the, the notes section for you to find. Awesome. Thank you so much, Jesse. Been a wonderful conversation with you. Thanks, Cody. It's been an honor. Thanks for listening to this episode. Please make sure to go onto your favorite podcast player of choice and there, rate the podcast, then subscribe so you don't miss any episodes. And then, if you truly want to be a leader, share this episode with someone that you know will be impacted because the best leaders fuel not only themselves, but others as well to their heroic potential. If you want to unlock your heroic potential faster, then you will want to join the League of Legendary Leaders, an association of leaders who are dedicated to unlocking their heroic potential, unlocking the heroic potential of others, and where legendary leaders are born. We also have a goal to raise $100,000 monthly to support nonprofits that are actively undertaking causes to impact the future in areas including neurodiversity, character strength, positive psychological research, homelessness, and more. Seize the call now. Go to www.theleadership.guide and click Get Free Guidance Now to propel you on your journey to legendary leadership. I'm your host, Cody Dakota, and I'm honored to have spent this time with you today. My final message for you and listen closely. It's time. Wake up your heroic potential. Let go of your fears and anxieties, and let's discover what is possible on your journey to become a legendary leader. Emerge and become who you are meant to be.